Hey, welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. This is your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I interview DJ Dodona. He is a Harvard Business School graduate who realized that working isn't that great. You know what? Yeah, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, you can work yourself to the grave. And for what? So he started questioning all this and took him down a profound journey of sabbaticals. And he is running the sabbaticalproject.org, which is a way to investigate what are sabbaticals about, what kind of impact do they have on both the employer and the employee, how do you take sabbaticals, what's the best practices that you should do, what in all his research surprised him, what's the future of sabbaticals. You don't want to miss this, unless, of course, you prefer working yourself into the grave. This episode was sponsored by TourRadar.com, and TourRadar.com is sponsoring an amazing contest just for us WanderLearn listeners. All you got to do to sign up is to go to TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn to enter in. Every month, there's a new contest, and it's pretty amazing prizes. You get to go travel all over the world. You sometimes are given $1,000 in cash to go spend on travel. You're going to love the prizes there, and it costs you just sharing your email at TourRadar.com slash WanderLearn. Enter in and win. You also went to Harvard Business School. I'm sorry for this. I apologize. <laughs> Graduated in 2010. And then what did you do afterwards and how did you get interested in sabbaticals? At what point? I mean, did you have to work like a few months after business school and you realized this fucking sucks. I need to take a break already. <laughs> well, I think in retrospect, I've come to believe that business school is one of the most socially acceptable sabbaticals. I didn't I didn't think about it that way at the time. But That's interesting. Yeah. If you think about it, you're you have permission to try out a bunch of other jobs. So the academic research calls it counterfactualization. So internships, you know, going to info sessions, doing projects. And so you're, you're actually trying out other ways to work. You're meeting people and learning about other opportunities out there that you might not have known about, right? So you're kind of opening the aperture of like what the possibilities are for work and, and life for you. And I think that's especially true with business school as opposed to other graduate schools because other graduate schools, let's say being a, going to law school or going to medical school, you have a very targeted window of like opportunities that you can do. Of course, you can do anything in theory, but it's much more limited. Business is like all-encompassing. Exactly. You can really do yeah. go to nonprofits. You can go to almost any industry on the planet. Right. Which I think is what also makes it a, a good learning experience for figuring out what you want to do, because then you meet teachers, you meet you know people from the military, you get to see a lot more than I think most people are exposed to in their in their college experiences or, or how they're growing up. And you know the work that I'm doing around sabbaticals really comes from the root of like how did people come into this journey around work? How did they think about their choices and how to approach work, um, which then ultimately leads them to to taking a sabbatical. At least the folks I'm interviewing. Step back. Uh, so right before business school, what mm. were you doing? I worked for a startup called Angie's List in Indianapolis. Oh, yeah, Indiana. Angie's so, List. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the original big lists. I mean, it was like <laughs> Yahoo almost. Yeah, exactly. So I joined you know, relatively early and kind of got that. I, I didn't study business in undergrad. It was political science and philosophy. So I and where did you go my, to undergrad? Sorry? Undergrad, where'd you go? Uh, Notre Dame. Okay, cool. And so uh, I've heard they got a good football team. Is that just <laughs> like propaganda? It's taken me a long time to be able to to miss watching a Notre Dame football game. I consider that to be a success. Okay, but uh, congratulations yeah, on have... your therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I kind of got my undergraduate business degree in the startup world, right? And then um, after trying to start a company and having it go relatively well, and then uh, kind of getting like a cease and desist letter. Uh, for for like the copyright infringement, I was like, I mean, I don't think I actually know what I'm doing in business. Maybe I should go and actually study some of this. So, went to business school, and the idea was 
um, I wanted to figure out how to make a, an impact in the world and, and do something that mattered. And I wanted to do something more international and in kind of scope and, uh, you know, continue on the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial trek. So what, what, by the way, what surprised you about Harvard business school when you got there that you didn't expect? I think, I think that upon visiting, I mean, I, I don't know, no one in my family has gone to Harvard. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing that was even kind of a possibility. And so the reason I got introduced to that, uh, network, I guess, was was from Angie's list. So the the CEO um, and the, the co-founder had both gone to business school and the COO. And so they had kind of turned me on to just the idea. And I was part of an entrepreneurial fellowship in Indiana. So I was trying to fight brain drain and keep people in the state because uh, there's a lot of great universities, but often people would go to Chicago or, or move elsewhere. So uh, those are the Orr Fellowship. And um, that's such an interesting concept that a state is fighting brain drain. I always think right. of like countries or even continents mm -hmm. fighting brain drain. But of course it makes sense that even in the States there's brain drain going on. And you know, like the people in Mississippi, all their geniuses don't stick around in mm -hmm. Mississippi. Yeah. And I think Indiana has a history of doing a, a, a really good job at that. And, and right now they have tech point foundation, which tries to identify folks and get them doing in, summer internships in the state. So all about trying to show folks who aren't from there, what's great about it and, um, and, you know, grow the economy. And it's, it's, it's a great community. Um, and so that was kind of my introduction to business school. And I remember you asked what I was surprised about. I went to visit Harvard business school and yeah, I was just surprised that the, the people there did not come off as how, how I would have assumed that Harvard people would have come like off. Like cocksuckers. <laughs> Your words, not mine. So, uh, it was, it was great to be there and, and, you know, just see the folks seem relatively confident and not competitive against each other. And, um, and I think also it's, it's large enough that you, there's enough people in your niche that, you know, you'll find six people that are interested in, you know, access to finance and emerging markets, you know, I have a thousand. And so if you went to a school of 200 people, there'd be, you know, point, point 0.5 of those people or something. Right. Um, so there was, there was a, a niche and I kind of came in, you know, wanting to, to do that and f access to finance and, um, you know, as a measure to give people, uh, you know, a way to kind of contribute as humans to the world mm -hmm. and found them. And so then uh, started a company with a professor and his PhD student from the Kennedy School. So from the policy and kind of economics, uh, international development side. And so, you know, to answer your first question about how I got obsessed with sabbaticals, it wasn't as though I was always thinking I would take one. <laughs> I was thinking, great, this is my dream job. I'm starting a company that makes a difference in people's lives. Uh, it's for profit. It's fast growth. It's exciting. I'm getting to travel and live all over the world. So I lived you know, uh, Kenya and South Africa and Indonesia, and our company was based in Peru. It just, it totally leveled up my international experience and exposure and everything was, was going great. So, um, about five, six years in my co-founder and I kind of looked at each other at a board meeting and we're like, man, this is, uh, this is really tiring. We have no fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's actually, so yes, but also, and I think you, you would, this would resonate with you. We had an amazing life. Um, but it was this life that didn't have a lot of room for, for things that were really important. Right. So what I, do you mean by that? So I would be asking myself, you know, at, at one point we were kind of our, our rest of world headquarters was in Boston and, you know, I'd ask myself, Hey, uh, this company wants you to come and do a presentation in Moscow. Right. And you're gonna meet with the biggest bank in, in Russia. And then like the second biggest credit bureau in the world. Um, or you could, you know, stay in Boston over the weekend. <laughs> and so I think I'm going to fly to St. Petersburg and take the train to Moscow and, you know, learn a lot, get to have an amazing education in, in the rest of the world. I would, you know, 
it's difficult not to take that that choice every time. Of course, yeah, it's addictive. Right. Yeah. So you know, we looked. But around. then eventually, you got burnt out. Yep. And I didn't know what that was, right? I you mean, didn't know what burnout was. Yeah, because yeah. I think I had just been this person who was you know maniacally driven and focused to accomplish, and like was that was part of my identity. This was is like, a common trait among yeah. Harvard <laughs> Business School people. <laughs> um, they may not all be cocksuckers, but they are all very driven. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, you know, I just, I found myself um, not knowing why I wasn't energized to do the thing that was objectively my dream job. And if that thing is not no longer energizing me and I'm no longer happy doing that, that kind of puts you into a tailspin. Like, yeah. this is not satisfying. Like, I don't know what knob I would turn to, to solve that problem, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think the the seed for the idea to take a sabbatical was I had a friend getting married in Portugal and my other friend had just finished med school and uh, I was like, hey, you want to go walk the Camino? You know, I've got like five days and we can like walk part of the Camino and then I'll go to the wedding in Portugal and you go off on your trip. And so he's talking about El Camino de Santiago yes. de Compostela yes. in, in northern Spain. Yes. The, the, the compostela yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you got the stamp and i was like great you know and I'm by the gonna... way uh most people uh walk about 900 kilometers roughly mm -hmm. and but you're right you can just do 100 and that's good enough great. to get this to go to heaven mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so i've got that going for me yeah, that's right <laughs> um but uh you know it was, it was typical trying to shoehorn in something well i can do a part of it and i'll shoehorn this into my wedding weekend and after that i'll go on this business trip it was kind of like indicative of, of my lifestyle at that point. Right. And, you know, because we only had four or five days, we were walking like, you know, 40, 50 kilometers a day. We were just doing some crazy stuff and we hadn't trained. And I mean, as you know, uh, the, the best way to, to sideline yourself is to take off way too many miles at the beginning of a trip. Yeah. And so we did that and my buddies had like a foot fracture and we had to get like a hotel in, in uh, Santiago and it was just kind of a mess. And, you know, you're talking to all these people who had done the entire Camino and right. and they kind of look at you they're looking looking down at you like oh you started in Syria yeah right? yeah <laughs> you and, little uh, cheater <laughs> and and so I'm thinking like this is ridiculous you know I I want to I've been under investing in my kind of spirituality and you know, like that kind of religious search are you by the way are you an atheist or are you religious so what was your uh, I grew up Catholic and I'm then, sorry and then went to, <laughs> you know went to Notre Dame and converted to footballism and then. Um, <laughs> I you know, spent, spent a lot of time in Africa and, and actually been on this kind of journey. I've always been kind of on a journey, but I was very proudly Jesuit raised. Um, and so that kind of, that really instilled in me, I think, this sense of service to others. Um, that was like very early on, you know, we would take a month in high school. Like you would do like service for a month. You wouldn't be going to school. Um, so like there's there's aspects of that tradition, which are really meaningful to me. And so, you know, I, I was like, ah, I'd really like to. But you felt, but, but in, the, in your 20s, you felt like you had completely neglected yeah. This side that you had at least pursued to some extent exactly as and, a child and the search itself. Right? right. I mean, the search, it doesn't, I guess for some people it might, but it wasn't just kind of like coming in and taking it. You have to actively go out and, and perform that search and kind of, you know, figure it out for yourself. And so that's rarely going to be urgent, though I thought it was important. And so in order to do something that's important, but not urgent, I, you know, when are you going to, when are you going to, how are you going to walk the Camino? Uh, which is what six eight weeks i'm not sure how long folks normally take it uh yeah something eight, like six yeah. weeks a lot of people do it in a month right how are you going to do that on a, on a regular vacation schedule and with you know normal responsibilities so that kind of got my wheels turning to say all right i want to do i want to invest more in this kind of spiritual exploration side uh i want to do something like this but i also wanted to see a different part of the world i'd, I'd been to europe a fair amount and 
and I also wanted to kind of help me explore Buddhism a bit more. Uh, and so, you know, did some light Googling, which has turned out to be way too light for, for the amount of preparation I needed to for the trip, um, and found out about this pilgrimage in Japan uh, on the island of Shikoku. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's like you visit 88 temples around this island, and it's, uh, you know, kind of honoring the, the person that brought Buddhism from China to Japan, Kobodaishi. And so you like, visit these 88 temples and, you know, various rituals and sleep under bridges and all that fun stuff. So, you know, I was like, okay, I've, I've kind of made the decision that I'm going to kind of take a little step away from, from work. And I've made the decision on here's an anchoring kind of task I'm going to do on this time off. This was your first sabbatical. Correct. And so, and, and, and repeat again, the number of days that you were going to be running around these 88 temples. Um, it's, a, it's about 800 miles. It took me six weeks, six weeks. Yeah. And so, and, and you didn't do a ton of preparation for it, and it turned out to be harder than you expected in many ways. Where did it push you and pull you, and how? where did you suffer? It's a good question. There were very few times I felt like I wasn't suffering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where did you have happiness? <laughs> That'll be a shorter conversation. <laughs> I think what I can say is that, so the, the pilgrimage itself is broken up into four prefectures, so it's kind of like four... Zones, yeah, of 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 the island, and they each have a theme, which I obviously can't remember right now. Mm -hmm. It was a broader theme of my my pilgrimage is that I didn't speak Japanese, so I wasn't learning. But what much. percentage of the people who are actually doing this <laughs> pilgrimage that did speak Japanese are the majority foreigners or the majority Japanese? I met one person in six weeks that I spoke English with. Wow! So it's it's most the the, the super majority of people doing this pilgrimage are are retired Japanese people who are going on tour buses that whisk you from temple to temple to temple and you do it maybe you take a, a series of weekends and you do it right? oh. and then there's there's people that maybe five percent of people are walking it and then there's like the less than one percent of, of foreigners who um i mean i think i've i've spent a lot of time traveling around the world not not as much as you have but it's japan is a place that makes you feel like an absolute infant like you you cannot do anything yourself and you're doing everything wrong and you don't understand why it's wrong but you know that it's wrong um, in, in like a very humbling and, and interesting way. <laughs> it's one, it's the most fascinating country on the planet. I really think so. And yeah. I've been to 122 and I, there's <laughs> nothing like Japan. Japan is just from another planet. It's a fascinating place. So you went on this pilgrimage, you suffered greatly, but you also grew. It transformed you. How did it transform you? So, you know, at, at about the third, at the, the middle between the third and the fourth prefecture, you're right across the, the bay from Hiroshima. And so, you know, I could, I could see on my map, I could walk, you know, a few miles and go to the ferry terminal and just go to Hiroshima. I was like, I should probably, like, I, I want to see Hiroshima. And so that got, that was the first time I kind of picked my head up from what I was doing, you know, walking for a month straight, picked my head up and said, like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Um, you know, you stop being a robot. Yeah, exactly. It's, I'd stopped kind of pursuing the pilgrimage in the same way that I pursued things in my life, which is just like, okay, here's the task. You know, even though I had had days where I was injured and people, you know, putting me up in the hospital, my feet were duct taped. I'd, it never kind of occurred to me to stop doing it. I was like, well, I mean, I finish and then I'll do something else. Right. But why, you know, why was I doing it at the, the frenetic pace that I was doing it? At? Why was I, why was I rushing, you know, why was I interacting with it like a, like a thing to accomplish. And so that actually let me step back and say like, okay, goal for part four of four is now to, to just try to be more present and, and enjoy it and like savor what I'm doing. And um, 
So that, that was like a, a big, the learning then came from not only identifying that that was how I approached it to date, but then failing at changing my approach in part four. And so at the end of that, you get to the 88th temple. It's at this, you know, maniacally difficult mountain you have to walk up. And, um, yeah, I got there. I was like, okay, well, I failed, I failed to change my approach. <laughs> Is there a lesson that I can learn from that? And I think what I took from it was that, okay, I'm, now I'm going to arrive at the end, you know, three days sooner than I, how I had thought when I was going to change my approach. And so I will take those days and then I will, I will use them in, in a way to prepare other pilgrims that call them Henro. And so I went to the first temple and just kind of sat there and I'd, I'd made little care packages with, you know, granola bars and like, you know, messages and, and things like that to, to, to give to folks. It's and amazing when, you, uh, as a through hiker, somebody as myself, after you've done a through hike, you know exactly what people need in the journey. You're like, you need a Snickers bar. <laughs> That's what you really need for enlightenment at this point of the journey. <laughs> and, and you're just like, you really realize the value of a shower or like, Yes, you need a shower or a home-cooked meal or whatever it is that, that has been lacking. And, and, and until you've done it, you don't realize mm -hmm. how these things. So it's great that you did this. You kind of like realize, okay, I'm going to help future pilgrims mm -hmm. by putting together these little care packages and, 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 and give back that way. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's relatively small. But I think it was um, illustrative of, in general, I think what a sabbatical helps you do, which is it allows you this kind of distance and perspective to step out from just how you are living on a day-to-day -day basis Absolutely. and then take that into consideration as you make your future decisions. Right. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do something that much different, um, but I think there's value in stopping and there can be potential value and I think a greater likelihood to change if you actually notice that about yourself versus just kind of existing in that, that mode. Did you take another sabbatical after that? When, what, was your, what year was that when you went to Japan? It's 2017. Okay, so that's pretty, it's recent, relatively recent. So in the last couple of years, what have you been doing? So I came back from that and, you know, basically what I decided to do was I decided to leave my company that I started, right? And so, you know. This I, is the one that you went to Moscow for a day for and all that <laughs> stuff, right? Right. This is uh, credit scoring in emerging markets. So trying to create data and information about entrepreneurs and individuals in, in emerging markets so the banks could lend to them. What was the name of the company? Uh, EFL, Entrepreneurial Finance Lab. Okay. And so then you decided to step away and I'm going to leave this company, right. the, this baby that you had created, that you had nurtured exactly. and devoted a large point of your, portion of your life to. And then what did you do? This well, was in 2018? Uh, 2017. So I really, I only took four plus months off, right? So it, it was like a pretty concentrated dose. Um, and I think the important thing there for me at least was that I stepped away not knowing what would happen, right? It wasn't clear that the company was going to be you know, total success. It wasn't clear it was going to be, you know, whether it would fail. And so like I had to leave with that uncertainty saying that I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how my departure is going to impact that. However, I need to kind of prioritize myself. In a but way they had, the company had already been surviving for four months without you. Right. And that's, I think that's another key piece about, you know, what this means for companies um, is, you know, identifying that kind of key personnel risk. Um, and so could I, have gotten rid of those responsibilities by just telling the rest of my team, like, I don't want to do this right now, or, okay, we're going to hire someone to do this. Uh, probably not, not totally, right? Because they're always going to kind of fall back on you. And even my departure date for the sabbatical was pushed three months um, because, you know, something always comes up. Something's always around the corner. Great opportunities, right? And opportunities that are, 
in a sense, self-inflicted wounds. Since I'm the co-founder, I'm like, well, you know, I, I value this quite highly, so I'm going to do that. And so never a great time, never the right time. And then when you take the time off, life goes on. So it is is also kind of a humbling, and maybe for some founders, it can be a big ego thing to to think that no, the, the company can't survive without me. And all of a sudden, they step away, let's say for medical reasons, for a couple of months, and they realize shit. In some cases, the company actually does better without me. <laughs> That's really like a real humble, right. uh, humbling situation. Bringing up medical is is a good point because that comes up in the majority of people that we interview about taking sabbaticals. There's there's not much that, that is going to force someone to take a step back that's more effective than a medical issue. So either their own health or someone else you often hear of, you know, close friend or family member passing away. And, like, that's the thing that snaps people out of their, their kind of road. It's sad that it takes death. I mean, either actual death or the, th- the very real threat of death to wake people up. But, inf- but that's just the reality of, I guess the way we're wired in our, as a species or something like that because I know I do it myself. Mm-hmm. I, I've said this many times that I obsess about death. I think about death every single day, my own death. And just like, and that's what keeps me motivated. That's mm-hmm. what keeps me focused and because it's such a powerful tool right. to use in a positive way is your own mortality. Right. And I think so many people just push it aside and don't even think about it. And they're like, they, ha- they live life as if they're going to live forever. And then they, they, they don't live up to what they believe in or what they really want in life. Mm-hmm. It's very sad, but you're right. It's, it's something that can kind of wake people up and then all of a sudden realize maybe I should take a sabbatical. Right. So I think what you're talking about, the Stoics have a phrase called me- memento mori, right? So it's this kind of nightly... Um, review back on like what's happened during the day and, and reminding yourself that, that you will die, right? That will come not in a um, you know, negative sense, but no. you know, how are you going to maximize this time? What did you do? Are you spending it in a way that's, that's the way that you want to? I think to your point, the reason why I think the research we're doing is exciting is that that is true. People will not take that break unless death or something befalls them. Or the other side of the coin is if a company says we have a sabbatical policy, then it's a very easy decision. You know, like you, I spent a lot of time asking people, like, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, what, you know? And when you ask so that make question, them take a sabbatical. Yeah, uh, and you get some great stories, right? Like, I'm in some meeting about, you know, like tech infrastructure, and I'm looking around, and being like, <laughs> I'm out of here, you know. <laughs> um, but and, other times, it's it's death. It's yeah, other times it's death. death. It's you know, in my case, kind of like burnout, and just you know, this kind of vicious cycle of not bringing your best self to work. And then you're feeling bad about that. I mean, it's, um, you know, burnout was just added into kind of the WHO. Like this is an epidemic. This is a health issue, right? That, that people are experiencing globally. Um, but when you ask people who, whose company has a sabbatical policy, right? The U.S. Treasury has a, has a leave without pay program, right? Where you, you keep benefits, you keep your kind of standing and, and stature, and you can take up to a year off. Um, when you ask people that have something like that, they're like, well, the reason I took it is because they have the policy. <laughs> it's very non-controversial, and they don't get themselves to the point where they're burnt out or an emergency has befallen, and they actually can, I think, enjoy their time off more because they're not trying to heal themselves and scramble around and, you know, like, essentially pull the parachute. But if you, if, if you were to examine, and maybe you've already done this, but if you were to examine a thousand companies that have sorry not a thousand companies companies that have at least a thousand employees or more so big companies 
what percentage of them actually have a sabbatical policy? You know, because I imagine small companies that just don't have it. Mm. You know, so if if a company is going to have a sabbatical policy, it's going to be a big Fortune 500 company. Mm. And what of the Fortune 500? How about that? Are oh. you, do you think maybe ten companies have a sabbatical policy? I mean, one of the reasons why I'm kind of going on this journey with with sabbaticals is because there's not a lot of good information out there. So you can find articles that say 14% of the top, you know, hundred companies have sabbatical policies. What is the definition of a sabbatical? I mean, I have a, I'm working with a fortune 100 company that is launching a sabbatical policy that's like three weeks every five years. I mean, so, I mean, does that, is that a sabbatical? Is that a vacation? So like, number one, the information's just not really out there. There's no consensus on what a sabbatical is or best practices. Number two, um, on your kind of assumption that like large companies would have it and small companies wouldn't, one of the most fascinating things about this research and, and interviews and discovery I've been doing is that there are a lot of exceptions. Uh, most people assume that there's, you know, it's paid sabbatical. What are you talking about? So I've seen law firms that have, you know, mandatory sabbaticals for partners, right? I've seen, you know, financial advisory serve, uh, firms that have mandatory sabbaticals. I've seen large companies that have sabbatical policies and small companies that have sabbatical policies. I've seen nonprofits and for-profits. And so, so that's interesting. I would not have guessed that at all. Yeah. So that's very counterintuitive, at least counterintuitive to my brain. Right. But yeah. It's and, so, and so if you believe that it's a good thing, which uh, you know, I want to talk about kind of what your catalyst, what your breaking point was, um, if you believe that's a good thing, then, um, you know, for example, they have a, the McGregor Foundation Detroit has this thing called the Miller Fellowship. And so they have a set of investees, nonprofits, and as soon as those nonprofit leaders reach a decade of service, they offer a paid sabbatical. Mm -hmm. So a year, 18 months, right? Um, why would a nonprofit do that? I, mean, I think most people would assume there's no way that a nonprofit would, right. would do that, right? I mean, you think about a nonprofit leader as being like overworked and super passionate. Who could possibly step into their, their role? Well, if you're the funder, you want to make sure that someone can step into their shoes when they you know, when they leave, when they, when they die, when they move on, whatnot. So it's actually, um, I'm looking for and, you know, spreading the learnings about organizations that see the reason why you should have sabbatical policies um, and have it themselves. That's a really good point you bring up, DJ, because this whole idea that people have to, you, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and you don't want to have people in the company be indispensable. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be indispensable. And so everybody should be replaceable, ideally for the company's sake. Right. And 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 one way to verify that the person is un indispensable is to make them go away for several months right. and see if she comes back and she's like, OK, well, you know, we survived without her for three, four months. So obviously she's not right. indispensable. One of the people that I interviewed is the, the co-founder and um, I don't know if it's superintendent or, or executive president of um, a a boarding school in Africa, right? And so this person's been there for a decade. They've done amazing stuff, educated thousands of leaders, and um, and he took took a sabbatical. And it was only, you know, one of those folks that just knows everything that's going on in the organization. They're like the beating pulse of the organization. And through taking that time off and coming back, he was able to realize like, oh, like these things go really well when I'm gone. And like maybe better than when I'm here. And like I didn't have any input on them, right? That's fine this thing went really poorly <laughs> and the, he would not have known that had he not taken that step back. Yeah. So I think, you know, especially, you know, founder syndrome and, and people who have all this institutional knowledge, like they get leaned upon, I think quite, quite frequently, like more frequently than, than they would know. Yeah. Um, 
talked to another uh, CEO in actually the Bay Area that, that runs a like a school lunch distribution company. And it was through taking that time off um, that they realized just how decisions are made in the organization. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to date, because it was a f- you know, fast growing company, but also like very kind of like top heavy as far as the decision making, um, they just hadn't empowered people to, to. And so what they found was that things didn't get done um, because they were waiting for approval. But when they talked about it, they're like, well, I would have, I would have said exactly what you wanted to do. Why didn't you just do it? And they realized that the structure for decision-making wasn't put in place so they would be empowered to make them. So I agree. Like in the absence of decision-makers, in the absence of what was was considered leaders, I think that's when you get an idea of like what's actually going on. And so if you're an investor, if you're a funder, that should be kind of, that should be at the, near the top of your list to figure out how resilient is this organization without the, the leader. Right. And that, and that can be true whether it's a startup with maybe only 20 employees as well as a company like Apple, mm-hmm. which you know, was at risk when they had Steve Jobs, who was such a cult leader, seemed irreplaceable. And, uh, and, and to, either way, you have to learn to live with that. Uh, now, before we get too deep in this stuff, since we talked, to, you touched on this idea of definition and how, poor, how little information there is about sabbaticals out there. How about we start at square 101, which is what the fuck is a sabbatical? <laughs> you know, does it because like in Europe, for example, mm. many Europeans get six weeks vacation. And in fact, if you go to Europe in August, there's like nobody working in the whole continent. I'm, I'm of course exaggerating. But the point is, is that Europe, you know, so to me, a sabbatical has to be at least a month. But what about I mean, but you've done uh, so much more research on this topic than me. So what what would what would you say is when does the sabbatical start? It's it's a tricky topic because I think that number one people use the word sabbatical because I think it it has this connotation of of prestige and you can say like I'm not working, I'm on a sabbatical versus I'm not working I'm I'm wandering around, you know. Oh, I see, okay. <laughs> right? Okay. So it, well, what about on vacation? I mean, there's, there's, I mean, does sabbatical sound cooler than being on vacation? It depends on, I mean, I think there's, listen, there's stigma around taking vacation, right? I mean, right. you have all these companies that have unlimited vacation policies and studies have shown that. Who has unlimited vacation policies and where can I apply? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and studies have shown that people take less vacation. Really? No, hold on. Did you just say, did I, did I there's companies that have unlimited vacation? Yeah, this is the, the terminology across the tech industry. industry. It's, you know, it's like, really? oh, we're not going to measure PTO. You have unlimited, just get your work done. And that, that kind of went But it's like bullshit, basically? I mean, you just as as in sabbaticals who's who's giving you the um who's who's giving you the example of how much vacation to take off so you can have an unlimited vacation policy you can have but if your boss never takes a vacation exactly. you're kind of fucked and so you know from the anecdotes that i've heard about google's 20% policy for example is that it was like 100 uh, sorry explain what 20% cuz now everybody knows what that yeah, is so uh so you know the idea was that you take friday and your work the engineers are working on their own project right so like take Take twenty percent of your time and, and like work on something completely different than your workload, and you'll hear all the things. Google News that product came out of the twenty percent time, and whatnot. But like what it really was is was people working one hundred and twenty percent. I mean, what did you produce on your twenty percent off? Well, like, well, I was working one hundred percent of the time. Like, produce something more, right? Right, right? So I think you know, unlimited vacation policies, all these things that kind of like work expands to fit the time that, that you're given. So, sure. all that to say that. People use the term sabbatical. There's there's not an agreed upon definition that I know of. To me, the definition of sabbatical, and especially surfacing from these interviews, is 
three kind of principles. One is extended period of time, right? So if you say a month, you know, uh, I would say at least a month. I think that from the interviews and the research we've done, people, it takes them a month, two months to just get out of work mode. Work of zone, course, yeah, right? yeah. I said at least a month. Yeah, yeah at least a month. It's um, just like, yeah, go ahead. So extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um which is a vague lawyerly term. So, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm trying to <laughs> pin you down to an actual number of days or, or weeks. or. Um, so, I mean, my, like my, my belief on this is it has to be six months. I think that like okay. that gives you, you can't see the end of six months when you, when you go into the beginning of it. It's just like an inconceivably long period of time. It gives you a couple months to, to unwind, to do things that take a lot of time. But, you know, not all people have six months. I've had folks say that there's something amazing about just taking a season right so three months um i've had folks that say it's something special about doing nine months right like what can you create in your life you know like nine months can create a lot of things and so what can you create with your life um folks you know on the academic calendar with their kids they take a year right they travel and align it to the school year or the inverse of that they take the summer right so um extended period of time Uh, so for you it's six months but some people might define it as little as one or two months yeah, I think I think ideally six months. But the bottom line is, there's just no agreed upon definition. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and I don't I don't think it's helpful to tell people like to shame people like this is not. Yeah, you didn't quite get there. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the lessons that we've learned is that you know any time you take off that's kind of extended outside of the realm of normal vacation is going to change your perspective towards work and time off in the future, and you you will probably take more of them. And they'll probably be longer as you feel more at comfort at ease without you know working in the more traditional way. So extended period of time uh, in doing something intentionally, right? And so that intention could be, I want to recover my health. I'm going to do yoga classes or healing or, you know, um, I'm going to learn how to dance or I'm going to write a book or whatever, right? But there's an intention around it. And then um, that's off of routine work. And so people will say, well, you know, am I not allowed to work on the sabbatical? Like, I want to write a book. It's like, that's totally fine. Um you know, I think that like it is it is very human to want to produce work of some sort. And I think you can do work on yourself. I think you can you know, I was I helped my dad remodel a, a house, you know. I mean I, I worked with this nonprofit a bit. Like I think there's 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 like health in doing work, but as long as you're not doing your routine work, I think it allows you this kind of like objective stand back. I'm gonna give you a fifteen second break to look over your notes because I need to do a plug in and ad here. Um so if you speaking about sabbaticals, if you wanna take a long vacation go with tourradar.com slash wanderlearn and you will get a chance to win one thousand dollars in travel credits to travel wherever the hell you want so again go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to enter in a contest to win a thousand dollars in travel credits and now let's get back with dj while we're talking about sabbaticals and i want to get into the practical things of like how will you be able to convince your employers because a lot of people are probably listening to us and you're like you two privileged dudes talking about sabbaticals i'm working at i don't know a grocery store or whatever i'm doing and it's going to be impossible to convince my employer to take a sabbatical so what do you say to those people who desperately would love to take a sabbatical they think this is the coolest thing ever but there's no way in hell they've got a family they got three children they got a dog. What the hell do they do? So this is the the purpose behind this research organization, the sabbatical project. I think, you know, 
we want to affect change about how our society treats time off work, right? Um, right now, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, and you know, talking to white guys who went to Harvard Business School next to each other, is that it, there's, a, there's a lot of privilege there, right? So not only kind of monetary privilege and, and prestige of, of, of jobs or the ability to get other jobs, but also kind of personality privilege, right? Do you, do you feel like you're a person that can take a risk? Were you raised, was your upbringing one where you saw people taking risks and it turned out well for themselves? And so um, the moral of the story right now is that <clears throat> it's not available for everybody, right? And I think that there are things you can do to make it, to make it more possible. And, and I know you've talked about this in some of your talks before, but at the end of the day, you're not, you can manage your spending while you're on it. So it, does it actually cost that much money or is it that people are kind of uncomfortable and unfamiliar with the, the prospect of not making money? That's an, that's an uncomfortable thing. But there are things you can do, you know, where you're traveling, are you renting out your house while you're gone? You know, I think uh, one of the interviewees, um, he was a, a CTO at a tech firm and um, he, they went to an island in the, the north of, uh, north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden and, you know, his, his wife was a teacher there, and so they lived on her kind of like teacher salary, and it helped him to to reset his entire relationship to money. He's like, well, we were able to live on this amount of money for an entire year. Wow, like that opens up a lot of options of what I thought I had to do to provide for my family when I get back, and et cetera. So I think um, understanding and preparing from a monetary perspective, if you want to take it and you can plan five years in advance, you know, my kids are going to be seven and nine. I want to do it before they get into middle school or high school then you're saving for something five years away versus getting yourself into a situation where it's tomorrow and you're trying to figure out how to make it work without any sort of money coming through. So I think, I think you know, money obviously plays a role here. Um, the second thing is, can you slot it in in between jobs, right? So you're not like burning the pier, <laughs> quitting your job and blowing everything up, but saying, all right, when I, when I look for the next job, I'm going to give myself four months and two months I'm going to spend on sabbatical not thinking about the next job. And in two months, I'm going to spend doing that, right? Mm -hmm. And so could you, say, could you imagine yourself saving for a few months, um, again, over the course of a long period of time to, to enable that to happen? Um, and then not only, uh, I think, can kind of slot into one's resume, but also can give you something rather compelling to talk about when you're in that job search, you know? Um, I had a friend who was interested in, in government and civic tech. And he was like, you know, I have any ideas of what I should do, where I should go on sabbatical? And I said, what is the place that's known for the most innovations in civic tech? And he goes, Estonia. I go, great. Go to Estonia for seven days, you know, at some point in your entire sabbatical. See how it feels to be there. Talk to some folks. And then you control the narrative. Maybe you liked it and you stayed there longer. Maybe you didn't, but you learned something. And then every time you go into, you know, which was essentially a career switch for him, you can talk about, well, here's what I learned in Estonia about their civic tech. And you already you know, have an interesting story that's going to set you apart. From did, he take a, did he take you up on that challenge? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. I beat him, though, because <laughs> I spent a whole fucking winter in oh, Estonia. No. A winter in Estonia, ladies and gentlemen, is tough. <laughs> Temperatures almost never b above freezing, hmm. and it's dark as hell. <laughs> Even when it's like the sun will come up around 9.30 in the morning, and it will go down around 3 p.m., and usually it's cloudy. So what, did you, what did you learn? <laughs> what did I learn? That I like sun. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, I learned that it was really not that bad. I was like, come on. If you can survive a winter in Estonia, it's really not that bad. And, you know, I expect it to be much colder. I expected minus 40 day, you know, degrees where it's minus 40 degrees outside. Now, the old timers told me that it used to 
be that cold because but climate change is affecting the the, the whole planet as well as Estonia that uh, as a result they didn't have as many cold days um, and just in general I just didn't find it that big I mean electricity has changed it's been such a game changer I mean like you can turn on lights anytime you want and you have lights I mean people who survived in Estonia like 5,000 years ago 500 years ago I mean that's impressive mm. doing it nowadays it's like <laughs> any idiot can do that but I think but still the moral of the story, just just so I can make sure to give an answer that's hopefully satisfying to more people, is that um, on on how to kind of convince employers how to make it happen is just, you know, the, I think the first step is people who have the ability to do so need to do so and talk about it. So one thing that that we're finding is a lot of people have taken these these periods of time off, but there is there's like a bit of a mixed stigma about like what did you know what, you had to take time off, what's wrong, and also like a jealousy, and so they don't want to you know. You know, yeah, exactly. Like trumpet how great, you know, spending a bunch of time off is. I think the more that, that individuals and companies are talking about, like, this is a thing that we think is important and, and we do it and, like, this is why, um, it becomes normalized, right? Um, and so that's that's the kind of first step is trying to figure out like, people who have the privilege and the ability to do so taking that time off. And that's where we're trying to kind of share and spread more stories. And then I think from there, it becomes something that people advocate for, right? I mean, the we were not born with a five day work week and two days for the weekend. Like that had to be something that was uh, fought for by labor unions and, you know, uh, folks of the religious persuasion over time to be able to get those days off. Um, you know, we have a summer in our academic calendars because of like the Prussian agricultural calendar from way back when. Right. And so no one's, no one wants to give up that summer now because that time is, is valuable. Right. I mean, even though you know that, you know, educational retention kind of slides over the summer and it's, it's a pain for parents to have to like cart their kids around while they're trying to work like time off and people thinking about what they enjoy doing as kids and having that space is, is important. And so that's not going anywhere. So similarly, we have to kind of fight that battle for this is the definition of a healthy, successful life is having, you know, periods of time off. So so much more advanced at this than us workaholic Americans. Mm. Or Japanese, for that matter. They got to suck, too. Because, I mean, the <laughs> Japanese, they have a term of, like, being mm-hmm. worked to death. I, I don't know if you know the term. <laughs> no, not the top but, of my But head, you yeah. know that there's such a term in the Japanese language that actually means, like, being worked to death, dying of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the, the, the word itself. But anyway, the, 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 the work-life balance of the Europeans and certainly the Latin Americans yep. is so much better it seems from far away at least. Yeah, I think I think partially I totally agree and partially I disagree because um you know, sometimes I get the reaction from Europeans, you know, kind of scoff of like, oh, like we call that vacation or as you said, you know, taking August off is is relatively commonplace in Sweden and things like that. Um but at the end of the day, I don't know if you saw this uh, article in the Atlantic on workism. No. Um this is kind of something that affects it was is basically kind of lamenting that, you know, in the good old days uh, you know, the the rich kind of landed gentry, like they would take a ton of time off. Their life was full of leisure, right? So how do we get to the point, from the point where when you're rich, you had a country home and a bunch of leisure to you're rich and you like work yourself to the bone, like no, nothing is good enough and that culture kind of like permeates downwards inside like the organizations and then everyone's negatively infected by it, right? So I think among this kind of class of individuals that are working in these competitive jobs and go to competitive schools like those people are not taking august off and twiddling their thumbs like they're also worried about not being able to take vacation and even when you're on vacation you have a phone now and so work is always in your pocket you know um i think one interesting thing about what i found about commonwealth countries is that for example australia has this extended service leave concept 
Um, so you know, all civil servants get this like months of extended service leave as part of their employment package, sabbaticals. Um, and, you know, I asked a friend, you know, why, why is that Australian guy? He's like, oh, you know, well, we just have a different relationship to work and time off than you Americans. Like, you guys are silly. Um, as it turns out, it's because, you know, it would take months for people to sail back and forth from, from England to the colonies. And so they would give their civil servants extended periods of time off to be able to transport themselves back and spend time with their families. And that's a vestige of that policy. No one's given that policy up anytime soon because, you know, having extended months off as a civil servant is a great thing to have, right? So I think that, um, you know, one of the reasons why going from kind of mission-oriented work in my startup to this, you know, I think people will look and say, like, well, what are you just taking a vacation, writing about taking more vacations? Like, you know, that doesn't seem to be very applicable. Um, from my time, you know, living and working in Indonesia, India, places like that, my experience is that those folks are not looking towards France and Sweden with how to evolve their economy and how, how much vacation to have. They're looking at the states, you know, and, you know, China is, they're working super hard. Their work weeks are not any, any easier than ours, and they're not, certainly not carving out August to spend time upcountry, right? So I think this is like a, this is an issue that we're maybe the, like seeing the leading edge consequences of with burnout and that sort of thing. But it's, it's going to affect, you know, the majority of the planet very quickly. Some of the takeaways that you're, you're learning so far in your research, because you've been at this research for how many months now? Uh, since, since the beginning, beginning of the year, so nine months. Okay, so nine months. And so what has surprised you in your research so far? I mean, I think that in general, uh, number one, people use sabbaticals as a tool for change. And so um, we're still looking into kind of what the roots in, in the literature and psychology is just about like what are the components that lead to change? And, and some of the things that are surfacing in the research is people come back with a renewed sense of confidence, um, a uh, higher risk tolerance, because they're realizing, like, actually, I took a few months off, and my life is fine. You know, it's maybe better. And so, like, I'm not going to be afraid of that. Um, and then also, like, uh, perspective. So they're, they're gaining perspective of their life that they hadn't gained before, right, um, being able to step back. And so I think those three things combined means that people are um, – more willing to make a change in their life and like the magnitude of the change, right. Is, is, can be much larger. So it doesn't mean everyone comes and quits their job and, and becomes a writer. Um, it means that people can either make more likely to make a tweak such as just how, how hard they work or how much time they take off. Like for example, um, at a, an entrepreneur that, that took time off, came back in the next company that, that they started, they gave summers off because his, his wife is a teacher and he's like, this is kind of nice. You know, have, I want to spend the summers with my kid. I only have X, additional summers before they, they leave to go off to college. And so like our company gets summers off, all employees have summers off. Imagine if Google did that. <laughs> Google will not be working for the summertime. <laughs> Use Bing search engine to search for something else. <laughs> Use the Yahoo search engine for that. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, it's, it, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because, because I've been thinking about like, you know, how does that work? And, um, Google has employees in Southern Hemisphere. You know, those people, their summers and their, their school time off is totally different. And so I think, like, if that's important to, to us as humans, yeah, then you make it happen. Um, it's certainly, like, that is not a, an output of capitalism. 
like, hey, as you get to a certain level of productivity, then all of a sudden you start maximizing leisure and, and like health. Absolutely. I mean, what you say is so, so true. It's just that, you know, some people think that there's this dogma. But if capitalist was truly as bloodthirsty as it is, maybe we would go all seven days a week. I and mean, some people, of course, do work seven days a week. But, um, you know, there is this we as a society choose to, you know, and it's just completely arbitrary that we have five. We work five days. I'm sure we could structure a society that we only work two days a week and we take five days off. We wouldn't produce as much stuff mm-hmm. and as much uh, output mm-hmm. if we only work two days a week as a complete planet. Right. But I, I don't think we would. Well, maybe we might starve a little bit. We might be hungry. <laughs> I mean, the farmers wouldn't be working, but do you see what I'm saying? It's just like, it's kind of just, if an alien landed here, it's like, okay, why are you guys working <laughs> five days a week and why not four or six exactly. or, you know, <laughs> but, you know, as I've started to think about, and, and back in the old days, it, everybody worked probably seven days a week. I don't know. I'm guessing in the middle ages. I mean, mm-hmm. you just, you worked when the farm was needed to be worked on. Exactly. Back to the Prussian agricultural calendar, calendar yeah. informing, you know, our, our kind of school schedule. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the surprises just in general is that I spend a lot of my time conv- like feeling as though I'm arguing for the value of taking time off, which is weird, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you if you put someone in a room and you say, like, hey, did you like your last vacation? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, hey, do you think you should have more vacation? Absolutely. And then you put people together and you put them in charge of a company and they're like, well, you know, well, we have right. to make the numbers work and like, can you imagine, right? And so it's, it is funny to say like, okay, can we just agree that, that like there are things you'd like to do in your life that you can't do with the current structure of time off? And if you zoom out, again, taking your alien example, and you say, okay, here's how we've set up work. You like go to school for 12 years, and then you graduate, and you're like 20-ish, 22. And then for the next 40 years, you work. And like the most time you're ever going to take off during that time is like two weeks in a row, and that's pretty rare. That like Okay, and then you die, and you might not even make it to then. Yeah, yeah. And you you might get there, and guess what? Your retirement age is pushed out ten years. So I, I like to think about the inverse of of like not how why should we take sabbaticals or how can we take why sabbaticals? It's like how did we get to the place where, you know, I had never taken more than two weeks off after a decade in the workforce. You know, I went from in you know internship to grad school to starting a company to um, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem right. You know, and I think some of the benefits that people talk about. Um, there's this term that just keeps coming up, which is humanity. Uh, I remember a woman was talking about how she was working for this consulting firm and, you know, she would wake up at six and like work, you know, until like six and then uh, have dinner and then she'd go to the gym afterwards so she could like not be tired so that she could stay up past midnight so that she could do it all over again. And she describes kind of, you know, being in the, the locker room in the gym and kind of looking at herself and just the thing that came to her mind was, I am not a machine. Like that is a thing that a machine does. You know, it's like lubricate the joints and then, you know, you start over and fire it up and go. Um, there's this notion that I, I can't quite find a good kind of terminology for. I just i will use what the people are saying in the interviews. It's just humanity. There's a humanity in, you know, being able to have time to be there for your family when someone's sick. Or, you know, I helped my cousin move just because I had, you know, I had excess time and I could go and fly to where my cousin was and help them move. Or, you know, I helped my, uh, like, a, one of my parents with a health issue. And, like, that that's what human, that's what being human is about. It's about relationships. It's about time. Um, and I think we've all seen the movie about what happens when you just, you know, turn working up to 11. Um, it doesn't bring happiness. Right. right? 
unless oh, it might bring some happiness for some people if they're truly passionate about their their work uh if they're they're utterly obsessed if they're an astronomer and they just love doing it they're going to be working on the cassini space probe and they're mm-hmm. going to be working for the next 10 years so as it's flying to cassini or to wherever to saturn um and and that's just so maybe it brings fulfillment to those but for many people yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll put it this way. If you look at like the longitudinal studies, like the grant study at Harvard, right? Like no one is sitting on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd worked 5% more. Yeah. Even folks that are, so. Even I, the, the ultra achievers yeah, or whatever. Do I need, do I need everyone in the world to say, do I think that everyone in the world needs to take a sabbatical? No. If you don't want to take a sabbatical, don't take a sabbatical. But what I have found is that uh, I have been thinking about what are, what's another thing that, that humans could do, that could have access to, that every person who's done it says that is a fantastic thing to do you know i i gather the the super majority of people that have kids would say like yeah you know like pros and cons but you know on that i'm really glad that i did that right but i've just i've been trying to find those folks and even if people i've I've interviewed people that have literally gotten divorced on sabbatical i've interviewed people whose parents passed away on sabbatical um like from really tough stuff those people say like well yeah you know, that would have happened otherwise. And I'm really glad that I got to have that time to sit with that or to be with the people that matter to me. And we take a quick commercial break to mention that Tour Radar is having a contest where you can win $1,000 if you apply at tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. It's your chance to get $1,000 worth of travel credits and you can travel anywhere in the world using one of Tour Radar's thousands and thousands of tours that they have. So go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to enter in for your chance and you will not regret it. Okay, we're back with DJ and we're talking about sabbaticals. And DJ, I want to ask you about Bulgaria. They have they have a lot of vacation time. And if you add up all their unpaid leave and all their time free, they have like almost two months. That's a lot. And they topped the poll, and I think it was The Economist. I can't remember exactly. And my question is, is that at, let's say there was some sort of nirvana perfect society, let's call it Estonia for, for just sake of argument, that offered all its citizens sabbaticals. Like every five years you can take six months off. Um, would that society suffer from productivity issues? Would it GDP decline? Would before you know it, it end up at the GDP of Burkina Faso? <laughs> well, I remember an anecdote about wartime Britain where they, they did a experiment. So they're obviously trying to get as much productivity as possible on their munitions manufacturing, right? So you, you had mobilized the entire country and you're saying, all right, here's how many hours you work per day. Here's how many hours you work per day, right? This is right after the kind of industrial revolution. So they hadn't quite tweaked that productivity engine. Um, and obviously they found declining productivity if you push, you know, over a certain number of hours. And so I think that's kind of one of the, one of the ways that we got this 40, 45 hour work week. Um, I think that the concept that we have honed, uh, productivity and we are doing a great job, uh, in places like the States is, is, you know, based on inertia. It's not based on, on data. Uh, you can look at a country like Sweden or like France, as you say, to, how are they doing on a GDP per capita basis um, based on what they kind of have as the amount of vacation days and, um, you know, taking August off and things like that. So, um, you know, in the European Union, you have more paid parental leave, right? I mean, the U.S. is catching up to Europe on a lot of these measures. And I think that you could play a, a game about who has higher GDP capita between the U.S. and Europe. But I don't think 
that you would be sacrificing a tremendous amount to to go down to the lowly GDP per capita of Germany, where what you gain from working in Germany is a lot of, uh, you know, sanctioned, state-sanctioned and mandated uh, amount of time off. So I think that um, additionally, what we're now dealing with is this notion of productivity that's not just connected to the amount of hours you spend in the office, but it's also connected to the amount of hours that you're able to disengage from work and look at the device in your pocket and things like that. So, um, you know, I don't think that, that comparing to how we've done things in the past is, is a, a great kind of indicator of whether it's producing healthy outcomes and, um, and how we should do stuff in the future, especially as we get, you know, more and more automated and more and more, you know, the ability for a lot of the economy to operate, um, you know, geographically apart from, from coworkers and in the office itself. So um, I think that the opportunity here is for companies to experiment with, okay, like what does this do um, for our, our workforce? And I mean, if you look at companies here in the Valley, I mean, the average tenure of new employees at places like Google and Facebook is sub three years, right? And so that GDP per capita argument, I think, falls apart pretty quickly if you're able to move the needle and have someone stay for five years or four years instead of three years, right? If you just think about the amount of money and time they spend training. So, I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this, again, is to try to bring a data-based approach to, um, to this concept. And so we want companies to run experiments. We're working with a professor at HBS, Ashley Willens, to identify companies that are you know, want to take uh, a database rigorous approach to, to their time off policies and figure out what's working and, and uh, how they can benefit from having policies like this in the future. Any big pioneering companies that you have noticed that are doing a interesting job or noteworthy job regarding this policy? So the research on companies is slated to start in 2020. So I have a lot of anecdotes, right? Okay. I have, uh, you know, you take even companies like McKinsey and Bain that have you know, take time programs or 80-20 programs you are working 20% less. And um, I think that, you know, there's law firms and you know, this, this kind of like services oriented feel can actually sub people in and out relatively well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of kind of uh, disparate examples. And what we're trying to do is bring those together, give them a bit of a mouthpiece and, and a megaphone on, on what's going on and, uh, and make it, you know, possible and give people permission to, to set up more policies. Yeah. Um, is there something that you would call into question this whole notion of even paying attention as much as we do about GDP? There's any pushback of, you know, like the Bhutan is asking for gross happiness product, you know, gross, gross happiness index and others. People are just questioning the whole notion of productivity of like, why is this our, the big goal? Mm -hmm. Why is this even important? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, to spend a lot of time online to see all the recent studies about burnout and, you know, uh, occurrences of depression and anxiety. I mean, we, you know, a hundred years ago, economists were forecasting that we would have, you know, 14 hour work weeks, right? We haven't gone in that direction. Like as we've, uh, as we've gained more productivity, we've reinvested into, into producing more, not working less. And, um, I don't think that's, that's demonstrated to be a recipe for happiness. So, I think other countries are starting to look. I mean, obviously, the gross national happiness gets a, a fair amount of airplay. Um, but again, you know, you don't have to look at, at countries that are doing something extremely crazy. Look to Europe and look at kind of policies they have for workers and think about how something that I think everyone can can sit on the same side of the table and say, we value, you know, the creation of, of human life and, and having kids, right? Um, and also a place like the States has some of the worst parental leave and, you know, maternity leave guaranteed in the world like that that doesn't that doesn't make any sense right right we're the richest society and yet we have 
mental illnesses <laughs> up the wazoo of people who are just burnt out and overworked. And I just know it affected, let's say, my wife, Rejoice. Uh, she came from Africa, and she's just like utterly stunned by how productive Americans are, like how workaholic they are and how go-go achievement-oriented compared to Africa. I mean, she's been to 31 or 32 African countries, and she, she was born and raised there, and she looks at the pace of life there and and how much they're 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 taking sabbaticals not because they it's organized but just because they may be unemployed for many months or even years and um but regardless there's just this you know we sometimes lose sight of how hard incredibly hard americans work and compared to other societies i think only the japanese might outdo us yeah i mean i think there's a there's a question to me of of productivity versus busyness right that and too. so i yeah. think that I, th I definitely think that americans are are really busy <laughs> yeah maybe busier than most i mean i spent from from living in southern and east africa i mean i've seen people with you know incredible worth work ethics and societies and cultures with incredible work ethics that um you know a lot of it is exacerbated by the amount of time you have to spend in traffic or like you know and so like a lot of the work ethic is directed towards like dealing with some of the the structural like hurdles to, to living in, in places like that. You're sure. right. Yeah. And so, but I think that we kind of have a self-inflicted wound. I remember know? this one guy, uh, he's from Benin. He told me that uh, when he went to America, he had budgeted four hours to do something. Like, I can't remember what he was trying to do. Probably he got a license or something like that. And he's like, I couldn't believe it, it only took 30 minutes. Because <laughs> <laughs> because in Benin, <laughs> it would have taken four hours. It would have taken half of his day just to do the simple task mm. <laughs> because the infrastructure sucks and you know just like the bureaucracy is horrendous and the efficiency is low and on and on but um or the electricity may not be working that day mm. and <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's crazy i mean uh, anyway so what do you hope or do you think is going to happen you know now in these 2020 election cycle there's this one candidate but you know and other people are talking about this universal basic income i don't know how much it's tied into sabbaticals but do you do you have an opinion about this because maybe some people see a correlation between the two i don't even know if it's a correlation it just popped into my head yeah the universal ubi universal basic income is this notion that seems as modern as or innovative as promoting sabbaticals first of all i think i think the concept of a sabbatical is actually is like quite old in the sense that you know the word sabbath right has has biblical roots and um you know you work six days you create the world you rest right you have a day a week where you're kind of uh, worshiping um, and so like that concept you know think in agriculture like uh, right. the fallow year right so you 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 don't farm right i mean like this concept of rest is actually i think an ancient um concept that we've actually lost i don't think that we're we're creating it or, or discovering it this notion of there is something else that's important out there in the world besides like productivity or work or whatever right um so i i do think it's a bit more of a, a rediscovery um, there's a lot of things that are competing for our attention and want us to be engaged in in things and on our phones um, there's not a lot of things that are saying like hey maybe you should take a few months and you know not be productive um i think that you know does it does it relate to universal basic income i'm not sure i mean again i, I want to 
I want to make sure that that this is seen as kind of an, an essential part of a kind of human wellness and, and development. You know, I have this this kind of idea of uh, being a way station or like a hut to hut trek, right? Where you you know you you have various moments in your life and times in your life where you're you're working on something, and I think it's good to to stop maybe at the peak of that mountain and look and say like, how how did that go? Like, how do I want to continue to to climb? Uh, am I on the right mountain or the wrong mountain, right? And I think there's, you know, you look at some some societies like Israel and some of the Commonwealth countries, Australia, the UK, they have this concept of gap years, which I think the prevalence and acceptance of that has changed a lot in the States um, over the past decade or so. Um, you have companies like Global Citizen Year that actually like enable people to take these gap years. And um, I think that's a great time to take time off. I think, as we said, business school is like a good moment in, early in someone's career to say, okay, here's what I... My parents said I should study economics and I got a job with a consulting firm. Here's what I've been doing. How does that sit with who I am and what I want to do, right? You kind of like stop and look around. Um, I think I can imagine, you know, folks that have kids. I have I've, uh, friends and people I've interviewed who've taken those kind of like parental leave off to be with their family unit and say like, I'm going to go away from my normal life and we're going to sit and figure out like, what does this mean for us and how do we want to be parents and you know, to really kind of like stay stay. Uh, kind of focused on that and present um you know i can imagine people that you know empty nest syndrome your kids leave right like that's a that's a big tweak in your life and so are you being intentional about like what that means and planning for the future some of the most inspiring interviews i do are with folks with kids right. you know I, I interviewed a uh a ceo who took their you know three kids on a two-month-long road trip around like 25 national parks in the western united states right so it's him and his wife his kids um and, you know, that, that creates memories that last a lifetime that transformed his relationship to his individual kids um, in a way that he just had never taken that amount of time just in a regular day-to-day work. So my, my question is just, you know, like I would like to see people thinking that you can take blocks of time over the course of your life and be intentional about that time and use it for whatever you have available for yourself at that time. So can everyone, you know, walk the Camino or walk across Japan? Like absolutely not, Right. Can can uh, someone get value taking their kids and spending a couple months with them? It's fantastic, right? It's not the same as sipping a coconut on a beach, but mm-hmm. um, it, it does different things, right? People who take extended honeymoons and say, like, I have just, you know, kind of pledged my life to this ever human being. Let's explore the world together and figure out what we want to what we want to do and what we want to create. I remember when 2008 happened and Obama had just been elected and there was this phrase that people kept saying, you know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. You know, you don't want to waste a crisis because it's a great chance to kind of reshuffle mm-hmm. the deck and reorganize yourself because people are more lenient to do radical changes when there's radical problems going on. And it kind of reminds me to some extent about sabbaticals. You know, it's, it's like when people quit their job or change jobs or they get fired or whatever, it's a terrible thing to just the next week to start a brand new fucking job. It's just like, don't waste this wonderful gap that you have between one job and another job. Ex- stretch that gap as much as you can possibly afford so that, you know, and, and, and people waste that gap mm-hmm. all the time. I see all the time people just like, they're on LinkedIn, they're the, they're, they go on to find their next job and then the, and they tell their future employer, yeah, I can start next week. <laughs> I'm like, Really? Don't do that. I mean, unless, of course, some people have such financial hardship that they really have to. But, I mean, 
that's another question that you should bring up in your brain. You're like, okay, why do you have such financial hardship? Is it because you're living in a house that's twice as big as it really needs it to be? Mm. Or you have twice as much crap as you need to be? Or you have a, a car that's twice as expensive as it should be? You've got a Tesla when you could just have a, like a little Honda for 5000 or $10,000. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and and on, this is an opportunity to question all those things. But right. I just think it's a terrible thing to waste. And people do it all the time, jumping from a job to the next job with no break. Yeah, I think that it, one of the learnings that, that I've had doing this research is that, um, I mean, I feel as though I, I did kind of waste my sabbatical. I mean, I, I didn't know some best practices I think could have allowed me to, to well, get what more What would you it. have done differently? I mean, for me, I think that going from uh, a world where you're like, you're at 100% intensity, right? Uh, to a world where it's 0% intensity, I think is kind of a, and, and you're isolated is kind of a recipe for, for a disaster. Well, you're saying the Japanese experience was 0% intensity. It sounded pretty intense to me. Just like a, so I spent the first month, um, doing i did a silent meditation retreat in new zealand i was doing hiking and trekking around new zealand so you're talking about mm. something that you know uh you know, thoughts and and ideas are racing around your mind the entire time you know, there's a lot of like it's i guess what i'm learning is that it's it's difficult to take time off oh yeah you know? yeah and so like you're especially putting, if you're a go-getter right yeah. um and so but it's also i think on the, the other side of that people will say like well you know um take a sabbatical and you might never work again. It's like, it's also difficult. Uh, it's difficult to, to be on vacation, extended vacation or sabbatical. You know I mean? It's difficult to not work. I think for like, some people, for some yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, it just depends. I mean, when you, when you have this kind of very driven personality, which is the classic Harvard business school person for them, they need coaxing. And for other people they're they have a tendency toward laziness and they're the ones who need to have a kick in the pants and to go out there and get a real job. So, you know, it depends on the personality, but I think most of the people that, you know, we're kind of addressing in this audience are people like you and me who are kind of driven and need to be told to sleep. I mean, that's another thing is that a lot of people don't even sleep much. There's all sorts of uh, Ariana Huffington, I think is her name. She's been this as a book about sleeping and all this. And that's a big thing about people telling, you know, turn off your, you know, your, your phone going, you know, Google has this digital well-being about, you know, turning the phone colors to black and white after 9 p.m. to discourage you from using your phone and all these things. So th there is definitely a you're, you're 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 DJ, you're very timely in this because this notion that we need to get more sleep, to get away from our phones and just get away from our kind of robotic nature before the robots take over. <laughs> Is, is I think is, is a message that is very timely and is, is society needs to hear it and do something about it. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to your point earlier, um, ways that, so I see a lot of people that, you know, they're afraid. I mentioned that you get kind of increase in, in confidence and risk tolerance is one of, appears to be one of the outputs of, of taking this extended period of time off. And that's definitely true. Yeah, and a, and a lot of people are, they're concerned that, they will not be able to get a job that that they have an expiration date that you know people won't value their skills and so I, th I think and that's definitely not true i mean i think a lot of people what's the difference between um you know taking two weeks off or applying for a job and starting right right away versus like taking three months off you know there might be some employers that say like well what did you do on that time off and i mean if you did something that you found value with and the employer says i don't want someone like you around in my company 
you might have dodged a bullet there. If they're not gonna, if they're not gonna take you know what you personally value seriously, then I think that's probably does not uh, does not forecast good work life balance at that at that job. But you know, I think the nefarious thing that happens there is that um, people will end up making the same decision as far as what type of job and what type of company to work for as they're currently working for, because obviously they're most qualified for something that's similar to what they're currently doing. And so you keep going on the train of a job or an industry or characteristics that kind of got you in the point where you're, you're not happy to begin with. Um, and so if you're going to, you know, get up the courage to make a, ch to make a change and it actually leads to be more similar than, than different, um, that's bad. So I, I hear a lot of people that have intention to take an extended period of time off. They get kind of scared or they get themselves wrapped up into job searches because, oh, hey, oh, you left your company. Like, oh, you should check out this company. And they, they find themselves kind of in job application hiring processes they didn't even want to be in, but then right. it feels good for someone to Or the headhunter calls you. Exactly. A lot of headhunters will can, can really pounce on desirable right. employees. And so that might be totally fine, but like, you know, what is the value of stepping back and just asking, is this the thing that I wanted to do next? You know, like, do I want to keep doing this particular thing? Do I want to do it in this way? And even if the answer is yes, would I also just like to spend a little bit more time with my family or, you know, be present for my best friend's wedding and help them plan it or execute it or, or like, get in shape? Yeah. You know, is there just like something else besides that incremental week of, of work and paycheck? that you would value that, uh, that you can clear out time for. And I think, um, I, I know a lot of workaholics. I understand there are people that, that can't imagine taking time off. I mean, also people, as I said before, like they do work on their sabbatical. So they say, you know, I've always wanted to write a book and they, they try to write it. Right. Um, do you think, do you think that, uh, some people were talking about the AI revolution and the robots are coming. There's been several books about this recently. What is your take? Do you think that you know, a lot of job displacements, you know, AI is going to displace so many jobs. Will that be the catalyst to all of a sudden once productivity soars because AI is doing all sorts of stuff that we used to do as human beings that therefore, you know, in this nirvana kind of world and this utopia that some people envision that we will then have the ability to then take sabbaticals because the robots are doing the work that we used to do at least some of the year. Right. I think that there's no evidence that humans will invest productivity into um, achieving more leisure time. I don't think we have any evidence over the past hundred years that, that they're going to trade productivity for leisure. Time. Yeah, it's it's like the horsepower versus you know fuel economy over the past you know twenty years prior to two thousand eight. It's like you got more efficient engines. And what we did was we deployed them to make more horsepower because that's what the consumers wanted. Then when the gas prices spiked, they said, well, actually, like we, we can make them more fuel efficient if that's what you would like, right? And so I think we've had, we keep getting more horsepower by having more technology, more processing power. And we're not using that to say, and I think we're going to start taking Friday. I think everyone should just take Fridays off. Like, you know, we got much more done than we did 10 years ago. Let's take Fridays off. So what is your prediction for, the, let's say, the year 2030, 2040? <laughs> I mean, do you think, DJ, that we're going to be heading more towards 60-hour work weeks or more toward 20-hour work weeks? What or, I can or, or, or will it just be more or less the same and we're just going to have sabbaticals? Well, we're definitely going to have hoverboards by then. I can tell you that much. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, what I would say is that uh, what I'm kind of modeling and, and hoping for is, is the same kind of hopefully a steeper, but the adoption curve of, of paid parental leave, right? I mean, I think 20 years ago, 10 years ago, no one had ever heard of paternity leave. And I think 
um, that conversation has changed a lot. Do we have a long way to go on that? Right. But I think people who have the privilege to be able to choose between jobs are now being discerning about, about parental leave. Right. And so I think similarly, if we can get people, if we can get companies to see the value in having these policies, which is either going to be demand or supply driven, either companies are going to say, we've realized that it helps, you know, increase tenure of employees. It helps increase productivity and creativity and help us increase our recruiting or employers are going to say we're a talented employee and we want to work at some place that has great benefits and, and a sabbatical policy is one of them like one of one of those levers is going to drive it or both um and you know as that happens then i think that that more and more people it'll be a, a virtuous cycle so that's my hope is that we can follow that kind of adoption curve something that um, makes a lot of sense in, the, in other countries paid parental leave um, you have extended service leave in Australia and you have, you have sabbaticals in, in Europe um, that Americans will see the writing of the wall, see that, that they have permission to do it, that things are going to be okay if they do it and that it's actually good for them and, um, and it'll be much more prevalent. So that's the, that's the goal. All right. There you go. There's the predictions. Okay. Well, thank you again so much. Uh, last reminder for people to go win $1,000 on tourradar.com slash wanderlearn, your chance to win $1,000 in travel credits. Just go there, tourradar.com slash wanderlearn, and they have been sponsoring this show. And I want to thank DJ Dodoma for having uh, come on the show to talk a little bit about sabbaticals, how you can get time off, and and what you should do about it, and maybe talk to your employer and make some change happen. I want to give you the last word, DJ, um, as far as how people can find you, find out your research, uh, stalk you. <laughs> Um, and any other advice that you might want to give to people as far as practical action items that they might want to take. So all those things. Let's want to wrap it up on that. Great. Well, the the website is the sabbaticalproject.org. So we're doing work with Professor. .org. .org. Okay, I'll dot put a link we'll get on, the short, well. on, on the short links. Oh, you said .com. We'll also get you there. Okay. Yep. And the so sabbatical, the sabbatical project. The sabbatical project. Okay. You can't leave out the the. Right. Okay. You can, but who knows? <laughs> um, and I think, you know, follow us there just on, you know, hearing stories of individuals that have taken sabbaticals. We're working on profiles of companies that offer sabbatical policies. I think it's, it's a lot about, um, permission. You know, how did you, how did you get your, your kind of definition of work and how you engage with work? And so seeing more people that are like other people that have taken sabbaticals and, and made it work for them is I think the key. And, uh, you know, so if you if you have taken a sabbatical, if you know folks who have taken them or if you know folks that are interested in taking them, just connect with us and uh, we're creating a community of people to help support those. So. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you again. And happy. Are, uh, when is your next sabbatical? <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about what I'm doing. So okay. I'm, I'm feeling energized. <laughs> you hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for talking, DJ. Thanks, Prince. Yeah. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. Tour Radar sponsored this episode and is also sponsoring an amazing travel contest for the Wander Learn audience. Every month, enter to win a new Tour Radar contest for a chance to win a life-changing travel adventure. To toss your name into the hat, just go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F-Tap-On. That's my first initial and my last name. 
ftapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one more reason to remember ftapon. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, don't forget to download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And then five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is France Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.